We have special music. Nessia and um, Sharon, come on up. And then Noad will bring God's word to us. Thank you for that introduction. We uh, rejoice in our church every time we hear of a new couple forming. Um, whether uh, it is a young man uh, proposing to a young woman to be married, or sometime when they start courting, or especially when the marriage 
uh, happens, but uh, there's discouraging statistics out there uh, regarding divorce. We often will uh, pledge to each other till uh, death does us part. We want to be married to that person we've committed ourselves to and stay with them until the Lord calls us to be with himself. But statistics speak otherwise. One of the statistics out there, if you were to uh, look at the United States and uh, divide the number of divorces over time, you'd have to say that every 13 seconds there is one divorce in America. That equates to 277 divorces per hour, 6,646 divorces per day, 46,523 divorces per week, and 2,419,196 divorces per year. That means that there are nine divorces in the time it takes for a couple to recite their wedding vows. More than 554 divorces occur during your typical romantic comedy movie. 1,385 divorces happen during the average wedding reception. And there are 19,353,568 divorces over the course of an average first marriage that ends in divorce, eight years. The average marriage ends in eight years. So we, uh, we advise our young couples that uh, get married to guard their marriage. Guard their marriage. Your marriage must be guarded because the statistics are so high against it. If you don't want your marriage to end in that way, you must guard it. In the letter that we are studying, the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul has a similar concern for the church at Corinth. He is concerned about their relationship to Christ. Their relationship to Christ. We have made it, as we're studying 2 Corinthians, to the 11th chapter. So let's begin with reading 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, and verse 1 through 4. Paul says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul is asking the Corinthians to bear with him in a little folly. He is about to do something that he considers foolish. In, uh, let's see if we can get that YouTube to work. Taking a risk here. Our uh, internet is sometime on, sometime off. A man will do something that most of us will consider very foolish. But he has a reason to do it. All right, what did the man do that we would consider foolish? 
Yeah, getting out of his car on a freeway, that's not very wise. Um, why did he do it? Yeah, there was a little kitten in the middle of the road, and uh, cars were just going over it, and he realized that kitten's chance of survival was not very good unless somebody did something about it. In a similar way, Paul will do something he considers foolish. We won't see it until the next passage. Uh, Paul will do what he would consider to be boastful. He will talk about all the reasons the Corinthians should believe in him instead of believing in the false teachers that came to Corinth. He will give all the evidence of his life of why they should realize he is a true apostle of Christ, while the uh, false teachers were not true apostles of Christ. But before he does it, he will explain why he is about to do this foolish thing. And the reason is he loves the Corinthians, right? Like that man loved that little kitten and was willing to put himself in danger to get that little kitten out of the way. So Paul is willing to make himself foolish for the sake of the Corinthians. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Paul was jealous, not of the Corinthians' relationship to himself, but of the Corinthians' relationship to Christ. Right? He wanted to see them to be that chaste virgin to, <coughs> to Christ. He wants them to be faithful to the lover of their souls, who is Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a reason we should all have that concern. We should all want to see people form a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and become his bride, first of all. And second, we want to see everybody to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. Paul had a special reason because he was the one who betrothed the Corinthians to Christ, meaning he was the one who came to them with the gospel, told them how much Jesus loved them, what Jesus did for them, and as a result, they believed in the Lord Jesus. They trusted in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of their souls, and therefore they became married, if you would, to the Lord Jesus, or engaged to the Lord Jesus. And Paul was the man who was involved in that, and that results in Paul having a special heart. If you've ever led a person to Christ and saw them saved, you found that the Lord Jesus put a burden in your heart for that person. We should all have burdens for one another, but there is a special burden that forms when God used you in, that, in forming that relationship. Paul was that man. He was the man God used to bring the Corinthians into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and therefore he has a burden for them, a burden for their chastity to see them continue in their faithfulness to Christ. Paul explains his fear in verse 3, but I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus is in danger, or I should say our fellowship, our walking with him. We believe that once a person is saved, they're saved forever. But the quality of your relationship, your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus is always in danger, as it was for the Corinthians. We recognize three enemies that try to derail us in our walk with Christ. Uh, I don't know if there's a particular order. Often I hear the flesh as mentioned first. The flesh is my desire to do things that are not pleasing to God. Uh, we all have different weaknesses. Uh, it could be uh, drugs, it could be uh, sex or pornography, it could be uh, things like video games. I uh, wrestled with video games over the years. I would just pour my hours into spending useless time moving electrons behind a computer screen. It's not a good use of your time. Uh, it may be fine if you just did it for a little bit, but it becomes sin when uh, it's an addiction and you're investing uh, your, your time, your precious time into it, time that you really don't have uh, to spend. And, and when I do that and I know that that's not what God wants me to do, 
My fellowship with him is broken. I am no longer walking with the Lord. Uh, the second uh, enemy we often mention is the world, the world around us. The world around us does not love God. And as we are attracted to the world, it takes away, again, from a close fellowship to God. Uh, this uh, week, me and my co-workers spoke about salaries we got paid at work. Now, I personally think that my job is fairly generous in their salaries. I feel that I'm well paid. But there's companies out there that pay better. Facebook is uh, right across the, the bay here, and they're planning to add an office to the Ardenwood neighborhood. And uh, they have the highest uh, median salary at $240,000 a year. I don't get paid that much. And so there was that tinge of, well, maybe, you know, I should consider changing jobs. Well, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong in changing job, but what is it I'm pursuing in this life? Am I pursuing the Lord Jesus? Do I want to walk close to the Lord Jesus? Or am I pursuing a career? Or am I pursuing money? The things that the world says are of greatest value, are they what I pursue as well? If I follow the world, I will not be following the Lord Jesus. So the world is an enemy to our relationship with the Lord Jesus. The third one that we often mention is the devil. The devil. And uh, the devil has different ways that he goes after us. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is active. The flesh is always acting up. The world is always far from God. But the devil picks his strikes against you. He's like a precision bomber that looks for some particular area of weakness, and he will hit you in that particular area of weakness. In uh, Peter, he is probably talking about persecutions. There were persecutions. People have decided to follow the Lord Jesus, and what happens? Persecution. They lose their jobs. They lose their homes. They get thrown in prison. Some of them are being killed. What should I do? Well, it's very simple. If I deny the Lord Jesus, all this persecution will stop. But that will break my fellowship with the Lord Jesus. But that's one form in which Satan will attack our walk with the Lord Jesus. Another one is uh, trials. Sometimes we find special trials uh, that arise against us, and they can be supernatural, like in the book of Job, the book of Job, uh, Job gets hit by these just disasters. His uh, property uh, gets taken away or destroyed. All his, his, uh, his um, animal livestock uh, gets destroyed or taken away from him. His uh, children die in a freak accident. We call it accident. The devil was behind it. The book of Job makes it very clear. Uh, his body gets struck with uh, boils or severe disease. Uh, again, seems like a freak accident, but we know it was the devil actually acting. And his purpose was to get Job to turn against God. And uh, praise God, we see in the book of Job that Job holds on to the Lord. But again, a very close call there. Uh, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We don't want that to be us. The danger to the Corinthians is of a different nature. It's the danger of false teachers, teaching lies about God. In verse 3, Paul says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. How did the serpent deceive Eve? Well, he told her, that uh, God didn't really have his best, was giving her the best she could. He told her that God was somehow denying her of the opportunity to become like God by denying her of 
of, that, of the fruit that would give her the knowledge of good and evil. That was a lie. God loved Eve. God made Eve for himself. God wanted that perfect relationship with Eve, and he certainly had the intention for Eve to be like him. He made Eve in his own image to have a relationship with him. And Eve's experience and knowledge of God would grow as she continued to follow God, trust God, and love God. And yet somehow the serpent in his craftiness managed convincing Eve otherwise, and he got her to turn against God. Paul's concern is that the false teacher in Corinth will do the same thing. He is concerned that their minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What is Paul talking about? What is the simplicity that is in Christ? We could discern that by following uh, a historical encounter Paul had with false teachers in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, we are told that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul went out with the gospel. He told people that God loved them. He sent Jesus uh, to, into this world and uh, to the cross. Jesus uh, died. He paid for their sins. And Jesus rose, was buried and he rose from the dead, and whoever put their faith in the Lord Jesus became a child of God and now had a perfect relationship with God. What did the false teachers who came from Judea said? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They said it's not enough. It's not enough that Jesus died for you. It's not enough that you believe in him. You must also be circumcised. The church in uh, Antioch uh, wanted this question solved. Paul immediately resisted this false teaching. He immediately told the believers in Antioch that that is false, that is not true, that is not the gospel. But there was a desire for a consensus from Jerusalem. People recognized that Jesus had 12 apostles and uh, and they were centered in Jerusalem. That's where the church was formed. And they just wanted a consensus. Can we get a consensus from Jerusalem about this question? So they sent Paul to Jerusalem. And there he shared what was happening among the Gentiles, how God was saving the Gentiles. And in verse 5 we see, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you see, it doesn't just end with circumcision. Now, if you want to be saved, not only do you need to be circumcised, but you must also keep the law of Moses. The law of Moses contains 613 commandments. You know, if your salvation depended on your ability of keeping those 613 or even remembering what they were, you are in trouble. And so uh, it says in verse, in verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, so we see the church in Jerusalem is really struggling with this issue. There is a large segment of, of people there who seem to believe this false doctrine or are not quite sure what to do about it. In verse 7, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. 
So Peter is wise here. He goes back to precedent, history. If uh, I would bring a difficult case to the uh, court, especially like the Supreme Court, as they discuss my case, they will look at, back at history. Have there been similar cases like this? Has this matter been settled in the past? And so Peter points to the past and says, you know, guys, this matter really was settled already because I brought the gospel to Gentiles. He's talking about Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. He had a dream, a vision of, of an angel. And uh, the angel told him to bring Peter along. Peter will tell him what he must do to be saved. Peter responds to the invitation together with other Jewish believers. And Peter starts sharing the gospel with Cornelius. And Cornelius and all his household and lots of people that Cornelius invited who were all Gentiles, never kept the law of Moses in their life, believed the gospel, and they're saved on the spot. And to show that they're saved, God gives them the Holy Spirit. In a visual manifestation, they start speaking in tongues. And so Peter realized, wow, God gave him the Holy Spirit just like he gave it to me and the other apostles on the day of Pentecost, showing that they are his children just as much as we are, even though they didn't keep the law of Moses. What's the conclusion? You do not have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. All you have to do is believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Now, therefore, verse 10, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter points out that these Judaizers, those who want Christians to also have to keep the law of Moses to be saved are really testing God. Look, God said they're saved. Are you telling God he was wrong? That's what they're doing. They're testing God by telling the Gentiles they must start keeping the law of Moses in order to be saved. They're going against what God has already showed to be true. And Peter adds, why are you putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We couldn't keep the law. Right? Why are we asking the Gentiles to do what we couldn't do? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How am I saved? It's by the grace of the Lord Jesus. What does grace mean? It's a free gift. I did not earn my salvation. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's grace. It's love. Right? It's not anything I do to deserve it. And I believe that's what Paul means when he is concerned that the minds of the Corinthians may be cor corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The gospel is simple. I am a sinner. I deserve God's judgment. God sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die in my place. When I trust in the Lord Jesus and what he did for me, I am saved. And there's nothing else I need to do in order to go to heaven. Now, that gospel reveals God's infinite love to me. And the Bible says, we love him because he first loved us. And as we understand that gospel, that simple gospel, our heart flourishes with love for the Lord Jesus because we realize how much he loves us. As the false teachers are beginning to change the story and say, well, wait a second, God doesn't love you that much, you also have to be circumcised. And wait a second, you still need some additional things to get God to love you and to take you to heaven. You see how that's beginning to change the thoughts that the Corinthians we ha will have about God, just like Satan got Eve to change her thoughts about God. By his telling her those lies, she started doubting God's love for her. And as a result, she tried to take care of her own needs as she perceived them. In a similar way, the false teachers are causing the Corinthians to question the love that God has for them 
As a result, there's this sense that now they have to do something in order to provide for their own needs. What Jesus did is no longer good enough for me. That's the concern that Paul has for the Corinthians. Is Paul justified in his concern? Verse 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul has reason for concern because false teachers were being allowed to stand up like I am standing up here and preach a different gospel. And the Corinthians were listening. Huh, that sounds interesting. Maybe we should think about that. <laughs> what are you doing? Is what Paul is telling them. And, but because they're allowing it, Paul is very concerned for the Corinthians. Let's continue with 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. There are two accusations made here against Paul by the false apostles. And uh, Paul is responding to these accusations in the letter. The first accusation was that Paul was untrained in speech. <clears throat> the second accusation seems to be that Paul was not a paid teacher. He wasn't being paid for his work as of, of uh, teaching, in, uh, teaching the gospel in Corinth. So the false teachers... Apparently, uh, Paul refers to him here as the most imminent apostles. Uh, why he calls them that, I'm not sure. It could be that that's what they call themselves. They certainly had a very high opinion of themselves. And so he refers to them perhaps as the most imminent apostles, uh, maybe in a sarcastic manner. But uh, so they were trained in speech. They probably went to school. Uh, they were trained orators. Uh, the Greeks uh, placed a lot of value on the power of oratory, being able to speak well, being a good speaker. Today, we think the same. We like good speakers that can entertain us and keep our attention uh, for an hour. And uh, Paul did not have that training. And uh, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, dispute that. It's true. Paul was not a trained uh, speaker, but what he does have is knowledge. He knows the truth. How does he know the truth? Well, God revealed it to Paul. On the uh, road to Emmaus, Jesus opens Paul's eyes to who the Lord Jesus really is. And it seems over a period of perhaps three years, the Lord Jesus continued to appear to the to Paul and revealed to Paul the truth about the gospel. And so Paul, not being taught by people, was able to go and preach the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus, how people can get saved and go to heaven. What Paul is pointing out to, it's true, I don't have training in oratory, but I do have knowledge. I do have the true knowledge of how a person can get saved and go to heaven. We sometimes 
uh, point out that substance is more important than form. What would you want? A teacher who can stand here and entertain you for an hour or a teacher who will teach you the truth? And Paul was one who would teach you the truth about how to come to know the Lord Jesus, even if he wasn't a trained orator. The second accusation against Paul, as I mentioned, was that he didn't charge. So it was customary for Greek teachers to charge their audience. So they perhaps would hire a hall, and they would say, at uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, I will teach the gospel of God, how a person can uh, be saved and go to heaven. And I'd have my faithful uh, servant at the door, and he will collect your denarius or whatever I would charge for the, for the message. And uh, you would be purchasing your way into the opportunity to hear what it is that I have to teach you. Paul did not do it, right? He confesses, did I commit sin in humbling myself? that you might be exalted because I preach the gospel to you free of charge? No, no. He did it because he loved them. He humbled himself. Paul worked as a tent maker at the same time he was preaching the gospel. Why? So that he wouldn't have to charge anyone for hearing the way to know God and to go to heaven. Right? He wanted it to be free. Why? Because he loved the Corinthians, right? Because I do not love you, he means it sarcastically. God knows that I do. I love you. That is why I continued to minister at Corinth, even though nobody paid me a dime. I wanted you to know God. I wanted you to go to heaven. I love you. And so what may have been used to discredit him by the false uh, teachers, Paul is using to prove that he is a true apostle of Christ and really the kind of person they want to believe, the, the kind of person that the Corinthians ought to listen to. Let's finish our passage for today by reading 2 Corinthians 11, 11 through 15. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul first defended himself. Now he exposes the false teachers for what they really are. Matthew 7.15 tells us, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul didn't make up false teachers. Jesus spoke about them first. Jesus warned his disciples that there will be uh, false prophets or wolves in sheep's clothing. That's what they look like. Wolves desire what the sheep have, right? They want to eat the sheep. The uh, false teachers in Corinth wanted what the Corinthians had. He, uh, he makes a statement of that in verse 20, which we will hear of next week. But uh, just looking at it really quick, Paul says, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. This was the actual behavior of the false uh, teachers in Corinth. Uh, they were devouring the Corinthians. They were leaving 
of the Corinthians and their provisions. They would ask the Corinthians to provide for their needs, perhaps by charging at the door. Uh, perhaps they, they called for special gifts at the meetings and said, uh, you need to give more money to the Lord. And uh, by the way, I'm the Lord's collector. And uh, the Corinthians were perhaps making do without certain things they needed in order to, to make these donations, to give these gifts to the false teachers at Corinth. Uh, an example of, uh, of false teachers today could be the televangelists. Now, I don't want to say that all televangelists do it. I haven't uh, done a, a, a thorough survey of them, but uh, there are people out there who will uh, preach what we would call a health and wealth gospel. They will say, God wants you to be healed. You have cancer. Uh, you uh, may have uh, a paralyzed child who cannot walk. That is not God's will. God's will is for you to be healed. Uh, they taught the wealth gospel. You are poor. Uh, your job doesn't pay you very much. You can't afford your rent. You have other financial difficulties. You're in credit card debt. God wants you to be wealthy. And uh, if you are somehow not experiencing God's blessing, it's because you are not giving God what he wants. Right? God wants to be first in your heart. And uh, the way you show God that he is first in your heart is you need to give to the Lord's work. And by the way, I am the Lord's collector. Uh, if you send me a check, uh, I assure you that God will be pleased with you and uh, your sickness will be resolved. Uh, your financial problems will be solved. Just send your check. And uh, to us, it sounds foolish, and yet uh, people like that have made millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, believers, perhaps not true believers, but at least those who make uh, confess to believe in the Lord Jesus. These people look nice, and they speak in an attractive fashion, and they will often take the name of the Lord Jesus, and they will preach uh, a lot of things that might be true. And that is, if you would, the wolf in sheep's clothing. They appear as true believers. They appear as true ministers of righteousness. They appear as apostles of Christ. And so Paul is determined to make their lives difficult. And he says, fine, you guys want to appear like apostles of Christ. Well, look at me as the example. If you want to be like me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to take a penny from the Corinthians. Now beat that. <laughs> it's a problem for them because they live off the Corinthians. They cannot copy Paul because Paul is refusing to take money from the Corinthians. As a result, they have to try to discredit Paul, which, which is what they try to do. But Paul is determined to take nothing from the Corinthians in order to make it as difficult as possible for these false teachers to copy him. What is the truth? The truth is that God loves us. God loves you. And uh, he provided for you. Is it possible that you will be sick? Is it possible for you to be poor and still be blessed by God? Yes, it is possible. Ephesians 1, I think we heard that earlier today at the breaking of bread, uh, tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Is God withholding his blessings from you? No, he is not. 
He has given you every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. He, he lists them, just looking at a few of them. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How good is that, to be holy? How good is that, to be without blame before God? in love, in a loving relationship, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. How good is it to be a child of God? Not just in this world, but for all of eternity. Is that blessing enough for you? Does God love you? The answer is yes. What application should we make for ourselves? Well, we need to realize that uh, we are in danger, right? Even though we are saved, even though we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we are betrothed to him, we have an enemy. Uh, Satan is like a roaring lion, and he will do everything he can to cause you to stumble in your walk with God and separate you from that sense of love with which Christ truly loves you. Paul is very concerned for that, for the Ephesians, <coughs> and really for all of us, we could take it as really his general prayer for believers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bowing our knees is something we do in prayer. He is bowing his knees to God in prayer. What is it that Paul prays for? From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He's praying to God, the Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That's good. We want to be strengthened by the spirit of God. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is good. We want to live by faith. We want Christ to have the lordship over our lives. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints... What is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? Paul's desire for the Ephesians and for us is that we will know the love of God. God loves us so much, but we are often unaware of how much God loves us. And that gives this opportunity to the devil to try to come in and convince us otherwise that somehow God does not love us. And so Paul is praying for the Corinthians, for the Ephesians and us to know the love of God, to know how much God loves us. How can we know the love that God has for us? I think in my mind's eye of a woman who is uh, betrothed to a soldier. And uh, the soldier is far away from home, and he may not be back for many months as he is serving his military duty. And uh, perhaps there's others who are not happy with her betrothal to this soldier. Uh, maybe her friends or family didn't quite approve. Uh, and uh, they seek to dissuade her from him, saying, you know, he doesn't really love you. You shouldn't wait for him. Just marry someone else. Isn't uh, Joe better than this, you know, faraway soldier? Somebody that, uh, you know, is right here and present and uh, has a, a good job and a good income. He would make a much better husband for you. How 
can she be faithful? How can she be a chaste virgin and keep her love to her uh, betrothed? Well, one way is if her betrothed wrote letters to her. Let's say that uh, before he left, he wrote uh, some poems describing his love. Or maybe while he's away, he writes her letters. What would be her protection is if she would keep those letters close to her. And every time she doubts his love, every time the attacks against him, against her love to him are made, she could uh, step aside and uh, she could uh, read those letters once again to remind her of his love for her. Brother, brothers and sisters, we have the same thing for us in the word of God. God wrote to us of his love for us in the Bible. And uh, what we need to protect ourselves from the attacks of the devil or the flesh or the world to try to dissuade us from the love that God has for us is God's word to us. We must be in God's word if we want to remember God's love for us. We must remember God's love for us if we are to be a faithful, a chaste virgin who is waiting for her Lord to return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who had his eye on us while we were still enemies of God. He came into this world to die for sinners. His blood was shed for us on the cross of Calvary. Yes, Father, it was a demonstration of his love and your love for us, but it was also the only effective means through which we could be saved, through which our sins could be atoned for so that we could be welcomed as children into your family and become the bride for your beloved son. We thank you for that. We ask for us, Lord, as we are indeed in danger, constant danger of attacks against that love, against that relationship, Lord, that you would help us ever remember your son and his love for us. For we ask it in his name. Amen.